Hey everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast focuses on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a primary care physician, speaker, and the author of several books about children and parenting. His fourth book, The Collapse of Parenting, was a New York Times bestseller. Dr. Sachs speaks on issues of child and adolescent development, and he has visited and worked with more than 460 schools, universities, churches, corporations, community groups, and parent groups. Dr. Sachs continues to see patients and continues to lead workshops for teachers, parents, and other professionals who work with children and teenagers. Dr. Sachs, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. Last year, you wrote an article for the Institute for Family Studies called Do Your Political Beliefs Affect Your Parenting? And we can just bottom line it here for the uh, for the audience. Uh, it looks like it does. Um, I want to read the beginning of a graph of the article that you wrote because it really grabbed me. And I think it perfectly explains uh, the, the sort of cultural situation we're in right now. Um, You wrote, a mom brought her six-year-old daughter into the office with a fever and a sore throat. I asked the little girl to open her mouth and say, ah. She shook her head and clenched her mouth shut. Mom, it looks like I'm going to need your help here. I said, could you please ask your daughter to open her mouth and say, ah. Mom arched her eyebrows and replied, her body, her choice. Wow. This mom was invoking the my was invoking the my body my choice slogan of abortion rights activists to defend her six year old daughter's refusal to let me the doctor look at her mother's throat. Uh, look in her throat. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look at her daughter's throat. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, you go on to say that in your 34 year career, you'd never seen this before. There hadn't been a connection between politics and parenting, but you conclude that that's changing today. I'd love to get your thoughts on this and why you think it is changing. Yeah. So as you noted, I've been a family doctor for a long time. And uh, until really quite recently, I didn't see any connection between politics and parenting. Uh, You'd find strict parents who were left of center. You'd find strict parents who were right of center and likewise with permissive parents. But in the past few years, uh, I'm seeing more and more, uh, which you might call aggressively permissive parents, like the one I described at the opening of the article, uh, aggressively permissive who think good parenting means letting kids decide everything, including uh, whether or not to open their mouth at the doctor's office, including whether or not they're boys or girls, regardless of their birth sex. Uh, and that's really quite new. That wasn't a thing even 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, you do bring up that aggressive, uh, uh, but it, you connect it to what a trend that's been around a lot longer, which is gentle parenting, um, permissive parenting. Uh, when I first had my kids, this was a big a big trend. And I had my first child in 2007. And I remember there being this sense that I have to choose a style. I have to choose which way I'm going to, uh, to, to, to parent. But it started with gentle parenting. So tell me what gentle parenting is. Of course, aggressively gentle parenting is what we're talking about right now. But talk about sort of the evolution of this, this parenting trend. Fair to say that gentle parenting means not saying no. Uh, and letting kids decide. Uh, 
so the leaders of, of gentle parenting, whom I cite and link to in the article, say that uh, you shouldn't use a timeout uh, and you shouldn't compel your child to be toilet trained. You should model toileting for them. And when they're ready, they will choose to use the toilet. Uh, but uh, old fashioned techniques of, of pushing kids to become toilet trained, they would say are, are wrong. Uh, you don't want to be coercive. Coercive is like the worst thing uh, in the uh, uh, world of gentle parenting. Um, and choice is, is the uh, letting kids choose is, I think it's fair to say, the foundation of gentle parenting, letting kids choose everything. Wow. And, and this is thought of by these practice, people who practice gentle parenting as this is a form of, of, of love, of being, you know, of certain, this is how you show as a parent, this is how you convey love to them by letting them have more say. Um, and, but you talk about a type of parenting, which is much, is strict, but loving parenting. Mm -hmm. um, this is what I, I, I like to employ. I feel like my kids would say I'm more strict. Um, but, but I, I try to be strict and loving. And why do you think that that is, and you talk about this, that that is, I, you have this great passage. I, I it reminded me of Goldilocks that it's, it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't go too far in one way or the other. It's just right. So tell me about sort of this, this type of, of parenting. So all my books are evidence-based. So I'm always citing lots of research, not just uh, giving you my opinion or even my experience, although I do draw on my experience as a family doctor. We actually have a great deal of good research, excellent research <coughs> on parenting styles. And of course, the, the founder and the, the most important person in this field is Diana Baumrind. Uh, Diana Baumrind coined the phrase authoritative parenting back in 1966. And she and her students uh, would go into the family, observe them for hours, many hours uh, over, over days. And uh, they found that there are basically four different parenting styles. Uh, uh, permissive, uh, letting kids decide. Uh, authoritarian, uh, which might call too hard parenting, which is my way or the highway and I'm going to whack you if you don't do as I say right away. Uh, not their parenting, or what you might call neglectful parenting, and authoritative parenting. That's a term she coined in 1966. Authoritative parenting means both strict and loving. Uh, and uh, she died in 2018, and before her death, she wrote about her concern that parenting in the United States is shifting, drifting in the permissive direction, and the parents are confused. They think that unconditional love, which is a good thing, means unconditional acceptance, which it doesn't. But the, what makes her such a powerful researcher is that she and her students followed these families for 10, 20, 30 years. So this kid who's being raised by a permissive parent at four years of age, 20 years later, 30 years later, is much more likely to be anxious, much more likely to be depressed, uh, more likely to be more, much more likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol compared to the kid who was raised by an authoritative, just right parenting. And in my writing, I use the terms too hard, too soft, just right, and not there to refer to 
uh, authoritarian, too hard, permissive, too soft, authoritative, just right, neglectful, not there, parenting. Likewise, she found that the children of authoritarian parenting, too hard, too strict, that those kids 20, 30 years down the road were more likely to be convicted of a, of a violent crime, wow. uh, less likely to be able to give and receive love in a romantic relationship, more likely to be physically abusive themselves. Uh, you want your kid to be just right. You want to be the just right parent. But what does that mean? It means that you are both strict and loving. And again, toward the end of her life, Dana Baumbrand found that not only parents, but researchers who study parenting have drifted in this permissive uh, direction. And she was especially concerned that people, uh, researchers in the field, were using her term authoritative parenting for what she would call permissive parenting, that they had actually misunderstood her so badly that they were creating rubrics and metrics that, that, that labeled a permissive parent as an authoritative parent. So she was very concerned yeah. uh, in the years before her death. Well, I think it's helpful to, to sort of you change the terms a little bit because just right parenting, um, I think, does convey to people that a little of this and a little of that, not not overboard in either way. But, you know, how do you think over the years, um, because, you know, these these parenting styles have existed. You know, I, I think my parents were just right parents, um, but they've existed for a long time. But the addition of social media. Um, has complicated matters so much. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on another kind of parenting strategy, which is free range parenting, which I am definitely a free range parent. And I believe in it. I think my kids are healthier because I let them at a young age um, kind of explore their world, um, you know, with some, with, you know, with, with some limitations. But with social media, I tend to be very much a, a hovering mother, um, you know, they can go to the park by themselves and have been able to go to the park for years by themselves. But boy, when it comes to social media, I check their phones. I actually, I'm my, one of, I think my proudest thing in the world is I have a 17 year old and he doesn't have a phone and he doesn't want one, but my 15 year old does because he does a lot of sports and, um, but we check it a lot. Um, talk to me about this sort of is, is how this has complicated matters and also, how people might see themselves as loving, but strong, or I'm sorry, loving, but, you know, strict, but then they let their kid, they get, you know, a phone with a full data plan and, and they aren't really checking their child's phone. Talk to me a little bit about that. So uh, Jonathan Haidt has a book uh, coming out called The Anxious Generation, and he shared a, an advanced reading copy with me. And he, he addresses this question head on in the opening chapters. Uh, because many parents like the idea of, you know, being free range parent, Lenora Skenazy is their hero, of course. but they're free range with regards to kids online behavior. And then they're helicopter parents with yes. regard to get what kids are doing in their, in the real world. And Jonathan uh, Hyde points out that's exactly backwards. The opposite. Yeah. You, yeah. You want to be involved, you need to limit, govern, and guide what your kid is doing online because the online world is a very toxic world. But you want to be the free-range parent with what your kid is doing in the real world. Uh, so you need to distinguish sharply between the online world and the real world. Let your kid have all kinds of freedom in the real world, but limit what they're doing in the online world. That's best practice based on the evidence. What are your sort of advice to parents on 
things like social media? Should they be on these platforms? Should they use them? You know, one thing that was very compelling for me um, is in my 15 year old getting a phone and he was 15 when he got it was that, you know, he's involved in many sports teams and they would have these group chats and he was literally the only kid that was not part of these group chats. And it became kind of a social barrier. Um, So I, I think there is that that parents are concerned about, about, you know, being a complete Luddite about technology and not letting your kid have a, have anything that, that you do run into that risk. So what advice do you give parents? Yeah. So again, my presentations for parents uh, are always evidence-based, not just my guess or my opinion, but what does the research show? And I'm in touch with the researchers. So I've emailed Gene Twenge on many occasions over the years. Gene Twenge is certainly our nation's leading researcher on exactly this topic. Uh, so back in 2019, she and her colleague Keith Campbell published a study of over 200,000 adolescents looking at the risk of becoming anxious and depressed as a function of how much time you're spending on social media. And uh, it's a very simple graph. And after about 30 minutes a day, it starts to go up and up and up and there's no taper in that trend line. So based on that paper published in 2019, in 2019, 2020, 2021, I was saying to parents, uh, it's okay for your kid to be on social media up to about 30 minutes a day, because, but not more than 30 minutes a day, because beyond 30 minutes a day, uh, we see this increase in anxiety and depression. Uh, so you need to install a, a parental monitoring app uh, that will lock your kid out of social media after 30, 40 minutes. That was a reasonable recommendation based on the evidence published in 2019. Well, 2019, those data were gathered in 2018. That's before TikTok. Oh, TikTok changed everything. everything. And more recent uh, work published in the last three, four years shows that there's no safe amount of use for kids under 18. That, ta- that, that increase in anxiety, depression now begins at zero time. Uh, and the evidence-based recommendation now is no use. So I actually emailed at Gene Twenge and I said, look, the more recent data suggests there is no safe amount. Uh, and she said, yes, the evidence now supports a total ban on social media for, for all children under 18 years of age. I said, can I quote you? And she said, yes, you can quote me. And um, Jonathan, Haidt in his, Jonathan Haidt in his new book uh, is aware of this research but he doesn't quite have the courage to say 18, he says 16. No use of social media under 16 years of age. But certainly I think we can say there's a consensus among the people who know the research that no child under 16, <clears throat> no child under 16 should be on social media. The evidence provides very strong support for that statement. I would add that my daughter who is 17 has never been on social media. And uh, she did an interview we have on, uh, I have on seven occasions now visited J. Sarah Catholic High School in San Juan Capistrano, California. And the last visit, uh, Sarah accompanied me and um, she uh, did an interview with Pat Reedy, who's vice president at that school. And he asked her, uh, he said, so Sarah, I understand you're not on any social media. Is that because your father won't let you? And she said, no, it's because I have a life. I have better things to do than scroll through TikTok and Instagram. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, link is still up there. It was actually 2022 that that interview took place. Uh, and she's still not on any social media. Most of the kids at her school are on social media, but she is not. 
when I speak to parents, I often use the analogy of alcohol. I say, imagine if we somehow got to 2004 and the human race had never figured out how to ferment, how to create fermented beverages. And then in 2004, somebody figured out how to make beer. And then in 2005, we got red wine. And then in 2006, we got uh, white wine. And then in 2007, we got uh, whiskey and, and liquors and mixed drinks. How long would it take for us to figure out that maybe 15-year-olds shouldn't be doing this? I don't think it would be immediately obvious. I think right. it would take some time. Right. On the contrary, I can imagine advising a prohibition on children drinking alcohol, and I can imagine parents putting, pushing back, saying, well, you know, this is what the, the, the real world, the adult world is like nowadays. I think we should prepare kids for the adult world. I don't want my daughter to be embarrassed because she doesn't know the difference between a Pinot Noir and a Merlot. Because yes, these yes. are exactly the criticisms yes. I hear from parents. They say, well, you know, the real world today, the adult world's all about social media. I don't want my kid not to understand how to get around right. Facebook or Instagram. Right. <laughs> uh, it's very unwise. We now have overwhelming evidence uh, that social media is the causal driver of this explosion of anxiety and depression among teens. Uh, and and to return to the uh, title of, of our conversation here today, yes. uh, why is it that the children of conservative parents are now less likely to be anxious and depressed than the children of left-of-center parents? It's be, I assert in my article, it's because left-of-center parents are now more permissive and let their kids spend as much time as they want on social media. Whereas conservative parents, on average, are somewhat more likely to limit, govern, and guide. Now, having said that, I can tell you about conservative parents I know who do a terrible job of limiting their kids' use of social media, and left-of-center parents who do a good job. But the trend lines are clearly there. And when you look at the aggressively permissive parent, the gentle parent who thinks that good, parents, good parenting means letting kids decide in every situation, uh, they are much more likely to be left of center than right of center. And I've counseled parents and I've said, you know, your daughter is waking up at two in the morning texting and looking at social media and she's sleep deprived in school. You got to take her phone from her every night at nine, switch it off and put it in the parents' uh, bedroom. She can have it back the next morning and the parents will be, oh, I couldn't take her phone from her. She'd totally freak oh, out. I, I couldn't do that. Uh, and that kind of response that I couldn't take my phone from my 12 year old daughter now much more common among left of center parents than it is among right of center parents. But this has to be the parents call. Yeah. It is not reasonable. It is not age appropriate to let your child decide what's your 14 year old daughter supposed to say tomorrow in school. When her friend says, hey, I texted you last night a minute, how to come you didn't answer? Is your daughter supposed to say, say well, researchers have found that sleep deprivation in adolescence is a major risk factor in the etiology of both anxiety and depression. That's ridiculous. You can't expect a 14-year-old to talk like that. You have to allow her to say, hey, my able parents take my phone every night at nine. Won't I have it back right. till next morning? Right. You have to have the courage to be the evil parent to take the phone, switch it off, and put it in the charger, which is going to be in the parent's bedroom. But many, many parents now are reluctant, are uncertain of their authority, hence the title of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Yes. When parents don't exercise their authority, that's the collapse of parenting, and the result is an explosion in kids who are both anxious and or depressed. 
Uh, and that graph that I showed in that article for the Institute for Family Studies, it shows a rise in the rate of anxiety, depression for kids, a bigger rise for left of center kids than for right of center kids, but it's rising for right of center kids as well. They are not by any means protected against this. They are somewhat protected compared to left of center parents, but a lot of right of center parents don't get it either. Right. And they right. also are letting kids decide while ironically they're hovering over their kid in the real world and, and tracking them with an app like Live360 in the real world, they're not tracking what their kids are doing online. They're not limiting what their kids are doing online. And those, so, so those kids are quite, as we would expect, becoming more likely to be anxious and or depressed. Well, one of the manifestations that's very interesting is kids are not driving anymore. They're just not getting their licenses. Now, some of that you can say, well, there's Uber. So if you live in an urban area, why would you get a car? They're expensive. For the few times you need a car, you can call an Uber. But we know that nationwide, even in rural areas, kids are not getting their licenses much. And I find that kind of fascinating. That And it shows just how online kids are. Because you don't need to drive anywhere when you can just stay at home and watch TikTok videos yeah. and entertain. And, yeah, Jean Twenge talks about that at great length in her recent book, Generations, where she goes through all the different generations and how Gen X and Polars are now more likely to be online. They pursue what she calls the slow life strategy, doing things at a later age, getting their license at a later age, uh, getting married at a much later age, if at all. Everything's being postponed, living in their parents' home to much later ages than previous generations. You know, you talk about, you know, how um, left of center parents and right of center parents, and they have different parenting styles. And again, this aggressive, um, what did you call it? Uh, sorry, the um, aggressive, uh, uh, aggressively permissive yeah. parenting style that is often employed on on the left. You know, it, it'd be interesting to look at this from a, ge a geographical breakdown, because or, or just in intensely red areas or intensely blue areas of the country, because I live in a very uh, blue, dark blue. I always say that if you could pick the darkest blue on the color wheel, that's where I live. And I know there, there still are some very conservative people, but they've adopted um, this aggressively permissive, even though, you know, they're regular churchgoers, they're, they vote conservative. They have always been conservative. Um, I find it's amazing. I had a conversation once with a mom and I, I, I don't want to go on too long because I want to get your thoughts on this, but I had a conversation with a mom and you kind of, you kind of brought this up too, where she said, how do you have the strength to tell them they can't have a phone? I mean, this is back when my kids were like 10 years old and I think, you know, middle school and she got, she got her, or maybe 12 and, and he was off to middle school and she thought, oh no, he's got to have a phone for middle school. And, I thought, why? He's in sixth grade. And she said, how do you, how do you stand up against the pressure? Because all of his friends were getting phones. And it was just astonishing to me. And again, this is a, this is, this is a conservative mom, but she lives in a, in a dark blue area and she was being influenced. Right? So have you, have you seen that breakdown sort of depending no. on where they live or if conservatives live in a very liberal area? Well, sure. Because it's hard to be the only one. And when your kid says, but all the other kids get to have their phones at bedtime, it's harder for the parent to say, well, I'm not their parent. I'm your parent. And again, one of the reasons I wrote my book, The Collapse of Parenting, was to empower and encourage that parent yeah. to explain that, uh, yeah, you're going to have to find the courage to be the only one. Or you can move 
And if you're going to move, I recommend moving to Utah. I've been very impressed <laughs> on my trips to Utah, uh, Greater Salt Lake City. I spoke to a mom in Sandy, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. Um, and none of her kids have phones and she's fine with that and her kids are fine with yeah, that. Yeah. And, and um, Salt Lake and the Greater Salt Lake City area is a very family-friendly place in a way that Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Manhattan absolutely are not. You know, in Salt Lake City, there's, there's clean places for women to breastfeed privately in public spaces. You don't see that in San Francisco or, or, or Washington, but, but um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a family-friendly place. Uh, now, uh, my wife and I chose to move from Montgomery County, Maryland, to Chester County, Pennsylvania. We thought we were infertile, and then after 15 years of marriage, we had our one and only oh. child. And so we uh, were not happy with the choice of schools available in Montgomery County, Maryland. And so we moved to Chester County, Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, and that's a big deal to, I had to sell my practice, find a new job, m moving. Uh, but your child has to be your first priority. And if the community you're living in is, is not right or is toxic, then you have to leave. Well, and in my case, we just transferred our children to classical schools, mm -hmm. uh, for which I am in the car for hours every day going back and forth. But it's it's our it's our number one priority, and uh, and this isn't a school choice uh, conversation. But I wasn't I didn't pay attention to the school choice issue very much. But boy, do I ever now because we're very lucky we're able to get our children into uh, schools that are more appropriate. And uh, it makes me sad that so many people are not able to do that. But I don't want to I don't want to get off subject. But I would love I I would love to to talk about schools a little bit and how this permissive parenting and especially aggressively permissive parenting is, in my opinion, really responsible for some of the chaos that we're seeing in schools. The lack of respect for authority figures, uh, for the lack of respect for adults, um, you obviously see that connection as well. Um, and I, I just, I just want to set this up a little bit more you know, there's a big parents' rights movement in this country. Now, I am a part of that. During COVID, I was one of those very vocal moms, you know, the sort of mama bear uh, movement. Um, but I've written enough about programs in our particularly public schools um, where it's obvious that parents are ceding more and more responsibilities of basic care for their children to the schools. And I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that's fair to parents. And, and I would quarrel with you about the uh, direction of the arrow of causality here. And that's something that I do address in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Why did this happen? Uh, I don't hold parents to blame. I hold the culture to blame. Mm -hmm. American popular culture has become a culture of disrespect. Yes. Uh, uh, there's, uh, and, and of course, in the book, I go into a uh, a great deal of exploration of what that means. If you look at the popular culture of a generation ago, the popular culture today, uh, I mean, beginning with the Disney Channel, the most popular TV shows right. now teach kids that it's cute and funny to be disrespectful. Uh, you know, uh, 50 years ago, Loggins and Messina had a number, uh, a top 10 hit song, um, uh, even though we ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. Everything, bring it a chain of joy. In the morning when I rise, bring a tear of joy to my eyes. Uh, uh, 
but now the most popular songs uh, we're talking oh. about Cardi B, WAP. Uh, yeah. uh, talk about Drake and, and Bruno Mars, who won six Grammys for his song, That's What I Like, where he's addressing a woman he doesn't know and asking her to turn around and drop it for a player because that's what I like, offering her money for sex. Uh, the culture has become a culture of disrespect. And the uh, that has undermined parents of author- parents authority and has crept into the schools. Uh, and uh, so... You said that parents have given up their authority or ceded See, they've ceded some. Yeah. But but I I think it's more that the school districts have taken the authority away from parents. And uh, so, for example, I cite a a uh, a lawsuit where parents are suing the school district because the school district uh, is encouraging kids to transition uh, to the other sex. Right. Uh, and 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 uh, withholding that information from the mother. And, yes. and one of the uh, items that they introduced in evidence is a poster where that they posted in the school where the school says, if your mom doesn't approve of your transition, I'm your mommy now. Yes. So some of the school districts are being, are aggressively taking that authority to themselves and denying it to parents uh, and, and parents, including left of center parents reach out to the school and said, why did you tell me that my daughter has transitioned to the male role? And they said, well, you have no right to know that. So I, 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 I uh, agree. So, so I agree with you. Are fighting back, but but the schools, some of the schools have become really toxic. Oh, I agree with you 100%. But just for the sake of argument, which I kind of like to have these little um, interesting debates, um, you know, I, I do I agree with you. But I I think about, um, for instance, the school lunch program, which we know now is pretty much breakfast, lunch, and a very big snack um, if you're in aftercare, which amounts caloric wise almost to a meal, um, and you know, so kids can be dropped off at school as early as I think 630 in the morning and they can be picked up, you know, as late as 6 p.m. Um, you know, there's wellness centers and health centers where you can get all sorts of things and your parents don't need to know. Um, there's sort of these enrichment enrichment programs, after school programs. The school does do a lot. I actually wrote an article a couple years ago about how they become almost social welfare centers. Um, you know, even when the school is closed for the holidays, you can still go there and eat in the cafeteria. They do. Um, they send home food on the weekends. Um, it's pretty remarkable what schools are doing. And if you look at nutrition studies um, for children, uh, the the best known child nutrition and nutrition science is difficult. Uh, but Ohio State did this incredible study that showed that if parent three things keep kids at a healthy weight there, uh, you put them to bed at a normal time, uh, limit their screen time and try to eat dinner together as a family, at least three or four times a week. These are all strong parenting habits. And so, you know, you, I think the researchers were expecting some magic bullet, but it really just showed that, you know, sort of having traditional family habits um, were the best thing for the child. But what it really revealed is more parental involvement. And so sometimes I think that the schools have accepted a role of of doing some of these very basic parenting things. And I'm getting back, I know I'm taking a long time to get to my point, but I, I think this might add to some children feeling a little bit depressed. It's almost, it almost goes into neglect. Uh, where a child feels like, you know, they spend so much time at the school 
they spend very little time with the parents if they're there for before care and after care. And believe me, I know kids who've been in before care and after kids uh, care for a long time and they get every enrichment program, their meals are all provided. I do think this is a bit of um, a diminishment in the role of parents. Well, and indeed, and I devoted an entire chapter to the question of food in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, and uh, explore why there has been this rise in obesity among children in this country. In 1971, 4% of American children were obese, not merely overweight. Today, more than 20% of American children are obese, not merely overweight. So a uh, quintupling over 50 years. Why did that happen? As you said, there are multiple factors. Uh, one is what kids eat. Uh, and this really came home to me when I was speaking to parents in Chappaqua, New York, which is an affluent suburb of New York City. And a mother and father shared that they'd made a healthy, nutritious supper for their son and daughter. And son and daughter came home and they both said, yuck, we don't want to eat that. Can we just order pizza? So dad sat down at his laptop and proceeded to order pizza online to the specifications provided by his daughter for her personal pizza and her son for his personal pizza with the various toppings they both wanted for their own pizza. And I asked dad, I said, why'd you do that? Why don't you just tell them this is what's for supper? Yeah. If they don't like it, they can go to bed hungry. And he 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 blanched. He said, Well, I don't believe in using starvation as a means of punishment. <sighs> I said, I said, they're not gonna starve. Not you know, starve. look, fifty years ago, if mom made supper and the kids didn't like it, she didn't run out and buy them a pizza. She would say, This is what's for supper. If you don't like it, you can go to bed hungry. But Parents now let kids decide yeah. what's for supper. Yeah. When you let 12-year-olds decide what's for supper, there are some 12-year-olds who will choose broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, and cauliflower. But there are many 12-year-olds who will choose pizza, french fries, potato chips, and ice cream. Right. When you let kids decide, you get more kids who are obese. So that's part of it. You also mentioned uh, family suppers. I talk a lot about that. We've got a great uh, study by Frank Algar and his colleagues who... I studied more than 10,000 adolescents coast to coast and found that the more, and asked each of them, in the last seven days, how many evening meals have you had at home with at least one parent? And the more evening meals kids have had at home with a parent, the less likely they are to be anxious and or depressed. Yeah. Uh, and there's and not just that one study. We've got many studies, which I cite, that show that the more evening meals kids have at home with a parent, the less likely they are to be anxious and or depressed. So I conclude that chapter by saying you've got to fight for supper at home. If computer coding class conflicts with supper at home, then cancel the class. Right. Because many parents are driving their kids from one activity to another and eating a sandwich in the car on the way from travel team soccer to computer coding class. And the unintended message you're sending is that being amazing and doing all these activities is more important than relaxed time at home with family. Don't send that message. That's a really toxic message. Cancel the class fight for time at home. That's one of the many concrete recommendations I make in the book. I, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, we're coming up on the the um, the time limit here. Um, but I wanted to end uh, by asking you, if you are talking to people uh, considering having kids, they haven't had kids yet. I think there's another thing. I'd just love to get your opinion on this because there's been a lot of debate sort of on social media, which I, I do for work, um, on the idea that motherhood is, this is more, usually it's, it's directed towards women, that motherhood is so hard, that, that being a parent is so hard. Just because you've spoken to so many parents and parent and professionals who work with parents, 
I, I would love to end on a sort of an uplifting message about the joys of parenthood and uh, why it isn't as hard as they sort of make it out to be. You got the wrong person. <laughs> uh, uh, as a parent, I can tell you the greatest joys of my life have come from being a parent without a doubt. But parenting today is very difficult. And what I hear most often from new parents is, I knew it was going to be difficult. I didn't realize it was going to be this difficult. They don't fully grasp that the newborn has no day-night cycle, that you will get no sleep. They don't fully understand how incredibly difficult it is to balance those demands with the demands of work. Um, they, as the child gets older uh, and all the other kids are looking at screens, they don't, they haven't fully understood how difficult it is to resist that and to be the, the only parent who's fighting back. Uh, this country makes it hard to be a parent. Uh, the original title of my book was The Collapse of American Parenting, and the subtitle was Why Most Kids Would Now Be Better Off Raised Outside North America. American kids are five times, 10 times, 20 times more likely to be on psychiatric medications compared to kids of comparable uh, household income living in Germany, living in German-speaking Switzerland, living in New Zealand, and I provide those data in another chapter of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Uh, so parenting, modern parenting is difficult, it's challenging, it is arguably more difficult and more challenging in the United States than outside North America. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I think Dr. I understand. Sachs, you are not answering this the way you were supposed to. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, the, um, the, the rewards are very great and there's nothing like it. And my, uh, the joy that I experience with my daughter when we're sailing or just talking or, or singing together, um, uh, there's, there's nothing else like it. Well, on that, I'm not going to ask another question because I'm going to end <laughs> this on a positive note. Dr. Sachs, I hope you will come back because I really enjoy your writing and um, the articles that you, you've been recently writing for um, uh, for all sorts of publications, but for the family studies is, is really, really interesting to all of our listeners, to my listeners particularly. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. The... Uh, Bespoke Parenting Podcast with Julie Gunlock is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. You can send comments and questions to me at julie.gunlock at iwf.org. And you can also suggest guests. So please, if there's someone that you think would be a good guest on this uh, podcast, please reach out and also help me by hitting the subscribe button and leaving a comment or review it at Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, and iwf.org. Hang in there, parents, and go bespoke.